Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast for our second monument of the season, Ronde van Vlaanderen, around Benji's house. That's the English translation. 273 kilometers of nonstop Halingen short cobbled climbs after they get into Flanders from the start in Antwerp. It finishes in Udenaarde, uh, which is the heart of cycling in the Flemish region. The last climb is the Audequarmont Paterberg combo, which they do a few t- well, they do that combo twice, but they do Quarmont three times. It has climbs like the Canaryberg, Bergtenhout, Valkenberg, Molenberg, Berendries, so many, too many to name. They're all like 1K, 6% or a variation of that theme. This show is presented by Swift, as you know, if you haven't been checking the news, Egan Bernal is already back riding and on Zwift. He did a huge group ride on Zwift yesterday. The favorite for this race, Tour of Flanders, Matthew van der Poel, began his recovery in January on Zwift. You can see the rides if you see follow him on Zwift that he did there back in January. And he was one of the main protagonists today. If you want to check out Zwift, you can go to Zwift.com for a free seven-day trial through the link in the description down below. Zwift are also the title sponsor of Paris Bay Femme Avec Zwift, which is in a couple of weeks, our third monument of the year. But Benji, decent breakaway in Flanders went today with uh, Taco Taco Burrito Burrito. Yes, Taco was in the breakaway, or should we call him Ataco van der Horn at this point? Yeah, sorry, Band. that was a uh, that was terrible. <laughs> Next to that, Manuele Boado for Astana. Typical. Every single RV we've got attackers from that team. Astana also from the team of Matthijs Paskins, which is uh, that Bingwall team, as you call it. Uh, Bingo in my language, at least. Vinyar from Lotto, Lindsay de Wilder for Sport Vlaanderen and Max Kante for Movistar. Mozzato in there as well. Tom Boli, who's riding with a fracture. And is visibly in pain when you see him on the screen. So I wonder why he's doing that. And uh, next to that, it was also reported that Ston the Wolf was in the breakaway. Is that correct? Because I thought there were only eight riders. He was there. As you just said, Citroen did have him there. So decent break. Like, the Wolf's a serious guy. And Taco. Yeah, certainly. And to be honest, behind them, we had the typical teams chasing that we expected to do so. But there was some doubt of who was going to control this race, knowing that Wout Finaud was in this, out of this race, meaning that Jumbo has less responsibility to take. And therefore, Alpecin was a team that came forward with the likes of Julien Vermoot, Tim de Klerk as well, very prominent at the front. Also, Eduardo Affini quite a bit for Jumbo as well. So those three were doing most of the work at the front of the peloton to keep the gap roughly at about four minutes. But honestly, not too much happened. Were you surprised that, no, not at Yumbo, you know, they still have Laporte and Bernard, but Quickstep, I thought they were going to, I don't know, De Klerk just came back from injury, they've had a pretty weak classics year so far, I would have, is the, is the issue that if you lean it all on, Al, on Alperson, you get a Varchek UAE to a situation again, <laughs> um, so they like, I guess, I don't know, I, sometimes I overthink it, I was surprised that Quickstep were pacing, but that's why the clerk is there, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And perhaps they also don't want to put a 
pressure on the cleric that he needs to be there in the middle of the race or in the final of the race at that point, saying that you can't pace at the start. Yeah, you're kind of... I think coming back from an injury, this is a good way to get his kilometers in and probably feels like a training ride for him. A pretty rough training ride, Joe Flanders. But uh, the race kept going. We had no fight between Fedorov and uh, Ferghard, unfortunately, this time around, unlike last year. So quite a sad moment. But after that, quite a few crashes. We had Kenneth van Roy crashing like twice. And then also next to that, he also uh, had a mechanical. So that's one of the uh, unluckiest guys of the day, I dare to say. The first prominent climb was the Autoquadamont, the first one. And nothing happened there. So that was the Autoquadamont. And... It was more controlling. They yep. were riding for Pollard, I think. Yeah, I think so as well. And after that, we knew that the most prominent climb that was upcoming was perhaps the Molenbeek with about 100k something like that and it was actually before the Molenbeek we also already saw action by the likes of Jonas Koch for Bora but then a different team tried to do something on the uh, Molenbeek right? Jumbo Visma I'll take this opportunity to say we have been destroyed doing our previews so far this year San Remo you and an Alphalete pulled out we have to do them before the race otherwise it's literally not a preview uh, then it's a live commentary and we uploaded it <laughs> two days later. Van Aert, the top favorite, pulls out of Flanders. So that necessarily changed Jumbo Visma, what they had to do in this race, because they now had Laporte and Benoit, who oh, objectively were like fourth and maybe eighth favorites in the race, with MVP Pagacha Asgren being the top three names. Nathan van Hooydonk went clear, bridged across to Koch. I was surprised that FDJ didn't have Genietz go with. Nathan van Hooydonk, instead they elected to pace behind him with Kung's second wheel. I was like, why not get riders up the road? It's Nathan van Hooydonk, you know, and then force Quickstep to chase. Eventually Quickstep, Quickstep rode as if they were Quickstep 2021. They started chasing van Hooydonk. It was then later that the move I expected on the Molenberg happened, which was a big group of like second tier guys going, including previous winner Betiol. It was initiated by Garcia Cortina, who's actually looked quite good, just bereft of teammates. Pedersen, Mats Pedersen in the group. It's kind of like his Hen Vagelhem 2021 early move with a teammate Kirsch with Mick van Dyke, who won Tour of Flanders like U23 last year. And they caught up to Van Hooydonk. Who was Quickstep Benji? Steimler and Stieber. I think that was. Yep. An illusion of strength up front. Okay. I think next to that, next to that quick step though, we also had Johnny Vermeer, which was a big factor because that meant that Vanderpool was kind of in a seat as well next to Jumbo, who was feeling like they were in some kind of seat, but probably a bit stressed because Peterson was also in that group. And I think every team was stressed that Peterson was in that group. And it meant that one team behind was not really presented in that chasing group. And that's the team of UAE. And UAE basically went to the front in the peloton. Gap was roughly 20 seconds at the start. We had the likes of Trenton and Vegas Jake Langham doing most of the work, I think, in the chasing. And it would probably mean that if they spent their energy there, that Pogi might be isolated fairly soon. So that's a good thing for all the other teams that are presented in that front group. But on the other hand, the gap went up, right? Like 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. At some point, did you get stressed that this group with Peterson might actually do something? I think Quickstep realized, holy shit, we've just given a minute to Pedersen against Stiebar and Steimler with Asgren behind. If they get <laughs> dropped, we're going to end up with a situation where Asgren's having to close 90 seconds. Same for Vanderpol with Alperson. Eventually, though, their 
Well, they stopped working, the quickstep guys. The gap went down to 15 seconds. We got to second Quartmont. We knew something was going to happen, and it did. Pagacha from the Wout van Aert Kemmelberg position on Wevelhem, terrible position, came from deep, and it looked like someone said in, in the Lantern Rouge YouTube members' Discord, it looked like Danny Martinez and Aguita attacking in the Grand Fondo against the amateurs in January or December. <laughs> like he went past everyone. He's just like, get out of my way. Only Asgren held his wheel and almost might have ruined his own race there, perhaps. And but eventually everyone he, he was just in such bad position. I wonder if he'd been in good position if he could have got big separation. So the group of favorites have caught that Pedersen break. I never saw Mads Pedersen again. By the way. An important factor there, Yumbo. Laporte had a crash just before uh, that out of yes. Guatemont came and ended up in a ditch. And we didn't even see that Laporte was down at and first because he was literally in the ditch together with Anthony Turgio, right? And that actually probably caused quite a bit as well for him to come back. And he was back just before that out of Guatemont, but obviously at the back of the peloton. So if something happens there like that Pogi attack, that's not going to go too well. And when it comes to Benoit's, I think that his positioning was it was not that great on that out of Quartermont, but later in the race that might even be more of a problem. But I think, uh, yeah, Poggy went pretty hard there. Osgren was in the wheel, and Vanderpool was one of the riders that was sitting back. He didn't care that those two were going off for a bit, right? Yeah, he was happy to be brought in the wheels. This is still with so long to go, the second Quartermont. We're talking like 55 kilometers plus, but it definitely split up the race, and we saw... On the climbs, Tay Pagacha was going to be the strongest on any of these cobble climbs today. We saw Pidcock in bad position pretty consistently, actually. I don't know what his legs were like, but Bahrain looked good. They were caught, and we sort of, there's like G2, G3, G4. It's all across the road. Laporte does make it to that group with Asger and MVP, Pagacha. There's Tratnik there, as well as Fred Wright. Ineos have Dylan Van Bala. Behind is Benoit. His race was pretty much done already at that point. Tratnik attacked on, oh, I can't recall. He looked really strong on an, on a subsequent climb. There's no respite at this point after, uh, I think, before the Tienberg. And then eventually, Dylan Van Baal. Ineos got into a group, Benji, with Pidcock, Van Baal, and was it Clock, I think, in a group <laughs> ahead. And they were all yeah. working really well. Clock is Ben Turner, by the way, Big Ben. Uh, that nickname is going to stick. Ineos go up the road with Dylan Van Baal and Fred Wright. Well, Fred Wright's on uh, Bahrain, by the way. I think it was a really good move because it puts them in a seat behind. Now Pidcock has to, quote-unquote, just mark Pagacha and MVP. And Bahrain need to play the numbers game too. It's what Jumbo Visma ideally would have been hoping to do, but Benoit wasn't able to do it. And it was Quick Step, Benji. This is what I couldn't believe. Quick Step were the ones working after Asgren had been dropped before. And this was, I'm not sure if this was before or after Asgren Mechanical. No, this was uh, before the Mechanical of Asgren. And it really came down to the uh, next climb where the full separation was going to happen in that elite group where, where Quick Step was already pacing again. And that was on the Koppenberg, right? That we saw that moved move towards the. Uh, well, that elite group moved towards the Kopenberg, and then uh, we saw a move by Pogacar almost straight from the bottom, and he started hammering that climb, and Van der Poel didn't instantly react. He was, like, on the left side of the road, I think, in the wheel of uh, Laporte, who was back after that crash, obviously. 
and then Van der Poel went to the right, straight through the middle, and was on the wheel of Pogacar, and they went over the top with... Was there anyone in their wheel still? Because I think Madua, right, was the only one? Madua, he looked incredible. Kung was also looking pretty good, but just a bit off. Madua was the only non-MVP, non-Pog character that could semi-match them on climbs today. And he would eventually get to those two, and they would bridge across to Fred Wright, and Dylan Van Baal. Asgren had a mechanical, but I think he didn't have it today either. Yeah. I don't think he had it. He was already getting dropped out of position. Laporte looked not the same as E3 either, but we'd, how much that crash cost him, presumably a fair, a fair bit. And we get this five. Van Baal, Madawas, MVP, Pagacha, Fred Wright. Top three in Flanders, outstanding result for... Madawas certainly, with Kung not able to sprint really well behind for Fred Wright as well. Dylan Van Baal's got Pidcock behind. Were you surprised those three, Benji, with last quad Montpartenberg to come, were so willing to work with Pog and MVP? Because I was literally in the, in the chat just being like, Dylan, man, and, and <laughs> we'll get to the finish where, where this gets out stupid. <laughs> but I was like, you have to sit on, man. Like, they're going to send Quamont Paderberg. You know they're going to send it. But I guess just sitting on even help. Like, they'll just ride. I don't know. I, I thought he should have sat on with Pidcock behind. I think it depends on what you believe can still happen because Pidcock was dropped already on that Kovenberg. So Van Baal in his mind is probably thinking, well... If I sit up, I've got a guy behind, but he's not really that great today. So if he gets back, well, then I'm still going to have to respond to everything that happens on the outer quadrant then Pateberg. But to be honest, I would have also probably tempered their riding a bit to make sure they don't ride as much or nearly not at all with the two riders that were the strongest in that group on paper, which was Poggy and Vanderpool. And even Maduwas, despite following there, I would have clearly said, no, I'm not going to ride with them because... Uh, yeah, that's what we what you do if you're an outsider. You make sure that the strongest riders in the race spend more energy so you can stay in their wheel and benefit from the fact that they spent more energy than you when you actually get to the moment that matters, which is the upcoming Auto Quadramont and Paterberg duo. And uh, yeah, we were looking at a big action on the Auto Quadramont first, and that group of five went to that Auto Quadramont, while in the group behind, attacks started flying left and right with Benoit going solo at some point. And, uh, well, no, with Kung and someone else, was it? D Dylan Turns. Well, I think yeah. Benoit initiated it. I can't remember, though. Benoit didn't pull for Laporte, uh, which I was surprised by. So yeah. Benoit seemed to go for himself. And then Kung and Turns were like, let's get more numbers up front. They never actually make it up front. But they started bringing across Turns not working, Kung working with Benoit. Aldequamont, Pog accelerates, Van Baal dropped immediately. And I was like, what were you playing at? But it seemed like he was actually riding for third in a way that was really conservative. He was riding against Madawas and Fred Wright and sort of riding his own pace, knowing you'd go way over your limit following Pog and MVP. Quarmont Pagacha already goes solo with, no, it's not solo, he's with somebody, with MVP without really attacking. Last part of Berg, hand on heart, Benji. Did you think Pog was going to drop MVP? And and how should he have approached last part of Berg? Short and steep to do it. A long, full effort or one burst? I thought it was possible to uh, make it happen. And I think he should have done a, a long, steady effort because we know that Vanderpool has that acceleration and can follow that one burst. 
And if the tempo slows down again, he should be able to hold on. And I think uh, I think he went for that steady pacing for Gachar, but not going to lie, there were points there where I was like, okay, Vanderpool's dropping, Vanderpool's dropping. Look, he's on the right on that small two centimeter section on the right of the cobble, like that small asphalt section that Vanderpool follows onto the path every, every bloody year. And at a certain point, it looks like he was not having the balance that he needed, and there was a bit of a gap, and he closed it again. So unfortunately, it's like he was in the wrong uh, game. Yeah, it would have been interesting if, for example, Bogaccio had a bit of a gap over the top of the Paterberg and Vanderpool had to chase it in those final 15 kilometers, but that was not happening. They went over the top together and Bogaccio tried. And at that point, what's your take? Who's going to win the sprint? What was it before we actually got to the sprint? I mean, I'm going to sound like um, patting myself on the back, but yeah, I thought MVDP <laughs> had 75 to 80% chance. Like Bogaccio, great sprint for, for his size, of course. I don't think he has Alaphilippe's 2018 flat sprint, 5 to 10 second. Uh, yes, he pushed Wout van Aert close in Makuni in the Olympics after an extremely hard mountainous race. But MVDP, Asgren types, they are built diff. They are 75 kilos plus. Matthew van der Poel always, after hard races, you saw in Tour, he can do 1,400 watt peak on the flat. If it's an uphill drag like Giro Stage 1, yeah, it's different, but this isn't. And it's a flat sprint. We know that there's going to be finessing in the finish. We know that MVDP's 10-second burst. Last year, go and look at the data. Uh, Carlos Ozzels wrote the article uh, on Wednesday after Dwyer's Tour. We looked at his data and RVV, his sprint against Asger, and his 10 second is good. It's his 10 to 15 seconds that's bad, but he can gap someone like Pogaccio off the wheel. That's a long way of saying I thought MVP would win the sprint, Benji. They work together. They get to the Flamme Rouge. Pogaccio starts finessing, and the group is closing. The group is closing quickly with Dylan Van Baal and Valentin Madewells working. We're going to analyze this sprint in full in a second. They come back. MVDP is basically track standing. We're like, oh my God, is this going to be like when Moritz went past him in Liège? Is Valentin Madawas <laughs> going to beat MVDP and Pikachu in Ronde van Vlandre? He actually comes up the inside. MVDP baits Pog and then opens up is his sprint from a standstill close and puts a full bike length into everybody whilst Madawas and Van Baal box in Pagacha with Matthew van der Poel taking his second Tour of Flanders win in the space of three years. We had another. He's been involved in all three sprints head-to-head three years in a row. Van Baal taking second, so weird tactics from him, but it worked out in the end, I guess. Madawas <laughs> third, incredible result. I think I called him for top 10 as a hot take. Um Podium would have been a, a better take. Pagacha fourth, Kung fifth, Turn sixth, Fred Wright seventh, Pedersen eighth. We didn't really see Laporte ninth, Christoph tenth. Christoph actually had a really nice race today, I would like to say. But Benji, talk us through this sprint. I want to really talk about this sprint. They always get analyzed. If you should have started quicker, you should have let it out, you should have done this and that. How should Pagacha have played this sprint? And does he have a right to be frustrated with, say, Van Baal coming in onto MVP's draft at the end? Because he was visibly mad after this race. Yeah. Pogacar was visibly mad. That's something that's definitely true. But when it comes to Pogacar's sprint, I'd say that once you start your sprint in second position, you're dependent on the first rider for the speed that is being taken into the sprint. We saw, if we look at last year's sprint, 
Vanderpool was the one at the front, but had a decent tempo with Osgrain in the wheel, which then benefited Osgrain, who could start from far and therefore go from, I think, 230 meters from the finish line and go towards the finish line and end up beating Vanderpool from a uh, rather fast compared to today's sprint, sprint and a far one as well. And then we look at today and we see that Vanderpool is starting it from a basically half the speed than last year, I dare to say, going into the final 250 meters. And obviously, Vanderpool sees that Thambala and Maduaz are coming. And perhaps he thought to himself, if I wait long enough, then they might actually box in Pogacar here. And eventually it led to the point where Vanderpool kick-started a sprint before actually properly launching because he start, stopped for a bit and then started again. And that was right at the moment where Vambal and Maduaz came by the sides of Pogacar. And the only way that I see that Pogacar if we analyze only the 200, last 250 meters, could get out of this, is by launching just before Vambal and Maduas block him in. But then he's risking to launch quite early, which is, yeah, the thing I see as the option here. Because there's quite a few people that are saying, well, he should have launched a sprint. He should have had a faster speed in the run into the sprint. But you can only do that if you're the first rider. And if you're the first rider with Vanderpool in your wheel, you're probably going to lose a sprint anyway. If he leads out MVDP and MVDP beats him in the sprint, he looks like the dumbest rider in history. So he was hoping MVDP stopped it. MVDP yeah. played this perfectly. The only way he loses this sprint, and he can always do after hard races, it seems, it's sort of dwells to, he can always do 1400 with 10 second good power. If MVDP starts at 250 with Pog, Pogacha in the draft the entire time, Kind of like the Makuni sprint, Pagacha can win. But if he does like a long sprint, and that's how Asgren went early and made it into yep. a 17, 20 second sprint. If he, gave, if he makes it into a 10, 12 second sprint, and I think he was trying to bait him, Benji, that initial surge, and then he stopped, looked, he's like, holy shit, I actually got half a bike length on you just doing that. Sat back down again, waited for Madawaz, because he knew, right? Those guys coming behind are fucked. So like they're not going to actually beat MVDP in the sprint. And I don't know if it was by design. Philippe did MVDP dirty in Javan Sapale 2019, boxed him in incredibly. Van Baal did that to MVD, uh, to Pagacha. It seemed like Pagacha didn't really trust his sprint, Benji. Uh, I think he the way he's done sprints, like he beat Philippe in Liège, draft, 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 last 50 meters come out of the wheel. I think he was hoping that would happen. Van Baal, though, let's talk about the Argy Bargy. Van Baal, who's carrying more speed from behind. Those guys have paced full gas to catch back to Pog and MVP. Van Baal comes in onto MVP's wheel and he's carrying a lot more speed than Pog and almost chops Pog's front wheel. And Pog takes his hands off the bars and pushes Van Baal. I don't really know how to call this one because it's actually rare that you see this. You don't really see this in bunch sprints too much obviously pog i don't know he nearly got his front wheel chopped but he he was already cooked by this point he was yeah. like how could he he wanted to open up his sprint into a space that literally didn't exist matter was on the barriers um but yeah i think that's a long way of saying i think mvp played it perfectly yes it would have been hard for him to lose this sprint what do you think for pog in the future benji do you think well do you think he's he's going to, in the future, be like, I have to go on Paterberg against the big classics guys. Like, I can't just go to the sprint. 
I don't think he should be like overly sad by this loss he showed that he can win all five monuments in his career but about today I do want to add that yes Van Bala did slowly get into a Pogacar's front wheel there but I don't think it was a I wouldn't rate it as a deviation like a proper deviation that should infer the deviation rule to be honest he did not necessarily endanger Pogacar in my personal opinion but then Pogacar also took his hand off his handlebar so he could honestly get relegated as well for that so we're looking at two potential situations there it's not like for Barlow was the only one doing something bad or bad uh, I wouldn't call it bad necessarily but I don't think this was a, a full-on deviation in that point. So I think the person that Pogacar is mostly angry at is himself. And I feel like Pogacar choked it, but I can't blame him too much because I probably would have done the same in that similar situation because it doesn't happen often that you've got this specific situation in a race, so it's yeah. very difficult to prepare for it. So I can't really say, oh, Pogi, you fucked it, mate. Come on. Like, nah, I can't I can't say that because yeah, he, he lost the race, but... A lot of riders would have done that in his situation. Well, yeah, like he was banking on MVP sort of bottling it and going at 250 to go and getting the slipstream and then maybe coming around and winning. And MVP played it so, so cool. It's like ice in his veins type stuff. Like yeah. sometimes his positioning, sometimes his choices leave a little bit to be desired, but in the finale here, unbelievable. He started racing at MSR about three weeks ago. Two and yep. a half weeks ago, he's won Toise Dour, a stage of Settimana, Copi Bartoli, which no one saw, and now his second Tour of Flanders. Incredible result. And, yeah, big congrats to MVP withstanding the onslaught from Pog. I would say, Benji, Pog on Yumbo Visma wins this race easily. Yeah. Pogacar on the so climbs. Think about like the panic situation they were doing with 75 Ks to go with Trenton having to chase for Pogaccio. And I think that's why he really wanted second at worst. Um, I think, yeah, I hope to see him back at Flanders next year. What do you think? How do you think Van Aert being here changes the race? Because it was a weird race. Honestly, it would probably have changed quite a bit for the sense that Jumbo got basically somewhat beheaded by the fact that Laporte crashed and then Benoit was in a terrible position when it mattered on the, uh, was it second quarter quarter month that he was in a terrible position? Or at least on one of the most important climbs of the day, he was not in the position he needed to be. And therefore, he was not able to respond when it mattered. And yeah, I think if Wout is there, at least one of those three would be in a good position. And with Laporte crashing, then they'd still have two riders left, you know? So I think there's quite a big difference there. We have been able to win this race. Perhaps we'll never know, but he wasn't here, so we'll have to do it with the facts that we have, which is that Vanderpool was the strongest rider of the day. And yeah, we can talk about what if Fanad was here, what if Fanad was here, but we can talk about Milano Sanremo. What if Ewan was there? Like, we can do that about every race, you know? So, meh. I think that uh, in the end, the strongest riders of the day were ahead for the last 15 kilometers, and one of them won. What about Quick Step? Best rider placed 23rd. This has been, it's all or nothing at Paris Bay, Benji. Yeah. This has been a horrendous classic season for them. It's not all their fault. Same with Israel, who weren't participating today, which was a little bit curious because I think a couple of their cobble guys were ready to start. You're permitted to not attend a World Tour race if you can't because of injury or sickness, rather, during COVID. Quick step. It's, I, don't, I, think, I think they're struggling with their identity, Benji. They seem to struggle mm -hmm. with that today where they're closing a move, full gas pacing with Lampard. I'm like, 
guys, you've got at best the fourth strongest rider in the race here, and you're bringing Pogi and yeah. MVP back after he dropped as well. So it's I not know. like he was the fourth anymore in my eyes either. So nah. I didn't see it from that point onwards. And yeah, they had bad luck. Like Osgain having his mechanical at the top of the Copenberg is about one of the worst places in the entire race to have a mechanical. <laughs> yeah. But you saw there was this moment where they had a shot on that Copenberg when Osgain was standing still and she were past him and looked like, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, you I gotta know. be so kidding me. Like three times in a row. Yeah. And seeing that phase was exactly what I thought to myself in that situation. Like, they had bad luck the entire preseason. They also simply, they're not what they used to be necessarily in team strength, even whether they, even if they were in full healthy condition, in my personal opinion. Osgain would probably have been pretty good as well, nonetheless. Um, if he didn't have that puncture mechanical, I dare to say he might have uh, certainly topped end. But hey, that's not how the race turned out. And yeah, perhaps they can try again on Paisu Ben in two weeks. They've got two weeks now to recover instead of one due to the uh, change of a uh, schedule with Amstel Gold Race between those two races. Anyway, it was a memorable Ronde van Vlaanderen seeing the back-to-back Tour de France winner going to a final sprint against one of the best classics riders in the world. I think it's good for the entertainment value, certainly, that MVP looks back. Um, we will do some back analysis later. Otherwise, shame, of course, that the top favourite Van Aert wasn't there, but still a very, very exciting race. And I think yeah, I think it's nice, Benji, to see Pogaccio a little bit frustrated for once. It can't be <laughs> it can't be too easy all the time. Yeah. It's good to see some adversity. Um so yeah, it was I'm not yeah, it's a shame for him, I guess, missing out on the podium, but it's we'll see how he fights back. Maybe he's a, a scarier prospect in his next races but yeah any last thoughts on the tour of flanders benji would you rate this above the the asgren it's very similar to the asgren one last year yeah it's similar i think uh it's gonna sound weird but the fact that the weather was a bit met today kind of made the images look a bit worse and i don't know if that is a factor for many people but for me that made it a bit less fun than last year Yeah, you, it was like snowing in Flanders. Yeah. It was cold conditions. It's snowing, like two meters of snow in Andorra. Anyway, great race. And um, Pogaccia, like Alaphilippe, like Balor, if he cared to do it. These small guys are scary prospects at Flanders. I think Avonapol should be drafted in with Alaphilippe next year for Flanders. <laughs> That's why they have to, I think. Yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah, Lotto Sudal, Campanaz. I don't know what happened with him. Not great for him either. That was our men's Tour of Flanders recap. Now time for the women's Tour of Flanders recap. Dance in Udenard, it finished about an hour or so after the men's race, 160Ks, same finale as the men's with Kreuzberg, then a descent, then the last Quartemont paterberg combo, cresting about 13.5Ks from the finish. Strong SD works team here, as always. Kopecky Majerus Reusser, Vanderbilt Black Vollering, AVV against the world. Although they have Norsgaard, who's a backup sprint option, and Sierra. Trek have been flying. They've got Bolsimo, Longo Borghini, Van Dijk, Brand, incredibly strong team. Henderson, Voss, Lebecki, Rihanna Marcus, strong at Yumbo as well. But it seemed to me, Benji, like SD Works had a very, very clear hierarchy in this race. We even saw Vollering working really, really early. Um, in this race as domestique, someone who lost the omelette sprint to AVV. First time the Koppenberg's been used in this race. 
I'm not sure what too much happened before then, but that was, uh, I guess, attempted to use as a launch pad. Yeah, I think so as well. And it was uh, almost used like that, I dare to say, because we knew the Kovenberg is a pretty steep one on the parkour of today. And like you say, it's kind of the start of that last hill range in this race. And we noticed that there was a, a peloton heading towards that. And it was Annemiek van Vleuten going ham on the Koppenberg already with roughly a good, uh, what is it, 45-ish kilometers to go, 49 kilometers to go. And it was pretty fun to see how everybody was fighting for that wheel of van Vleuten on the Koppenberg. And the winners were as D-Works because they were there with three riders in her wheel, including the likes of... Uh, Kopecky was in that wheel, Volring was in that wheel, and we also had uh, Royster in that wheel, who was actually the first one in the wheel of Van Vleuten, together with a uh, Movistar rider in the fifth wheel. So two Movistars and three SD works first over that top. And the team I'm missing there is Treg, but they had been attacking quite a few times with the likes of Alicina Brandt earlier on in the race. So it could be that they shot quite a few shots before we got to that Koppenberg already. But still, I'd expect more action there from track riders and they seem to be following and it wasn't until like a for nine friday where balsamo was one of the first riders of trek so strong performance there getting over the combat in the top 10 positions i dare to say for elisa balsamo and perhaps she might be able to hold on towards the uh, latter parts of this race but we noticed that after the combat that comes back together and a move started happening at the front of the peloton and it was by an attack by i think aleni sierra that actually kicked it off where Majerus was in that group, the likes of Anna Henderson, Nivia Doma, Brody Chapman, Reimakers, Berti Zolo, Confolonieri Alessio, Baril, and Van der Duyn. But the strongest riders there, a Majerus, a Chapman, a Nivia Doma, those are pretty strong riders. And Sierra as well. Which teams are missing? Trek. Again, not in this move. So a recurring team in this race. And despite having Majerus in that front group, SDWorks wasn't happy. SDWorks was like, how about we make this more interesting? Let's attack with Royzer in the group behind. And Royzer ended up catching that front group. And what did you think for that situation going into the final 30 kilometers where you have both Majerus and the likes of a uh, Marlon Royster in that group? Do you think that Movistar is panicking behind? I think so. Particularly Royster is a tank. Like, you don't want her slipping away, not chasing too long. Majerus is extremely strong. The only thing was that... This reminded me of the Ronda whatever documentary that Flanders Classics puts out, the start of it, the MVP one, the first time. And as one of the Rudhoffs says, the point of today is that Matthew, it's all about Matthew. Matthew is going to win. And I feel like there was a similar conversation in the SD Works bus today. Belgian champ Kopecky, number one rider for this team in this race. Uh, as I said, we've seen Volering working. And I think the whole point was to try and believe, vol uh, not following, AVV a bit. It worked in Strada Bianca. She doesn't have as strong a team. They just want to put difficult put Movistar in a difficult position because Norsgaard's yep. a sprinter and even Sierra's kind of a punchy type. They don't even have like a Chapman engine to bring it back comfortably. So I think that was the point. I always thought it was kind of for Kopecky, but... And we saw that later, Benji, as we moved on to the to the last Quarmont, where that group was yep. still clear. And I looked down at the ticket. I was like, Brody Chapman. I, I thought it was. <laughs> I thought it was someone else. I, I, I was like, this is incredible performance from her. She slipped away with. I think was it Royce? Yeah, she was uh, together with Royce. Ran at the back. We saw that Movistar was hammering it towards that outer Quarmont to launch. 
again, Van Vleuten on the outer corner to try and close that because they're not probably not comfortable with only Sierra in that front group. And that was pretty clear as they started moving up right there. And like you said, the split was at the front. There was a split. And it was because, first of all, Majerus worked for Royster, and then Royster followed Chapman, who attacked on the outer quadrant. So not even the Royster attack happened. It was Chapman herself that went first. So, again, MVP of the day in my eyes, certainly when it comes to the outsider teams here, is Chapman. And we noticed that the riders that tried to follow were Nivia Doma, which I was expecting a bit more of, I guess, with following Chapman and Royster on the outer quadrant. Sierra also following Nivia Doma there. And then eventually Von Vleuten just flew past the... Uh, quite a few riders towards that but no she did not catch up yet because there was a gap then Royster and Chapman were off alone on a bit of an adventure and that's between the outer month and that upcoming climb the path to the bed where a lot can happen and the odd thing was I looked at that second group and who was pacing in the descent towards the path to the bed it was Chantel Vanderbilt Black and this is where the hierarchy became very very clear for SD Works Pacing a group with Annemiek van Vleuten back to a group with Royster and Chapman before the Paterberg, I don't know. I don't know about that. I still, I'm still not <laughs> sure I'd be, I would tell the riders to do that in the car, but they wanted Belgian national champ Ronde van Vlaanderen to win, I think. And they brought that, like, it's crazy, Benji. If AVV dropped them all in the Paterberg, then <laughs> it wouldn't have looked good. But she wasn't able to. They get to the part of her. It's Royce pacing hard. She dropped Brody Chapman. Chantal Varenbrook Black, I think, was just slipping off the back a little bit. Kopecky is, you can't even see her the whole race. Yeah. She's stuck behind the slender figure of Van Vleuten on the Butterberg. And this is where Van Vleuten went clear last year. She wasn't able to. Maybe that extra work, maybe having to bridge back, wasn't able to. She crests the Butterberg, the last climb of the day, with Royce, with uh, Lotica Pecky with Nuvidoma and Chapman 10 metres behind them and Chantal Vandenbroek Black a little bit further behind. So then with two SD Works riders, neither of whom were willing to really... Royce paced for a bit. She yeah. tried to attack. Their plan was, I think, to work over AVV. I, I saw two sort of conflicting strategies here, Benji. That's I thought... SD Works either would have chosen, okay, Kopecky sprint, awesome, pace with Royce, or let's roll attacks. And they kind of did a bit of both. Yeah, I think so as well. And it, the situation led to something weird because Royce indeed started pacing a bit, then stopped pacing, and they basically started looking at Von Vleuten to pace. But if you're on a MIG, there's no way you're going to be pacing in a group with Kopecky and Royce, even if it like brings other people back, because then you might try and attack somewhat later on when the cooperation is is a bit gone, but they knew that Vandenbroek Black was in the group behind, and perhaps that's the reason why they started throwing around a bit, because the, that group with Vandenbroek Black and Chapman came back to that Royster and Sothorff group, and we saw a move by Vandenbroek Black on the, uh, I think it was right side of the road, I'm not actually certain about that fact, but uh, she actually got a bit of a gap, and it was up to Von Vleuten to respond, obviously, and Kopecky, she was on a bit of a gap, like, trying to chase down Von Vleuten, I was a bit scared when it comes to that, because Van Vleuten was hammering towards that move by Van den Broek and the others couldn't follow. It was those three that were left at that point. Then Van Vleuten closes down Van den Broek Kopecky closes down those two. And then you've got a very similar situation than the one they just came from. Two SD Works riders with Van Vleuten. And then it was clear that one rider was working for the other at first with Van den Broek keeping up the pace for Kopecky. But... At some point, it started going weird again because I swear that Kopecky was certainly pacing. 
A couple of times, yeah. And I thought, okay, why is this different to the Royster situation, which you weren't happy with, which you attacked from? Uh, I don't know what's changed here. Like, <laughs> why don't you let Royster come back, attack again, bleed AVV some more? We still got 11Ks from the finish. We saw that at Omloop, AVV paced the entire time, still won the sprint. And here, she was able to sit in the draft of Chantal Vulnerable Black for 8Ks, recovering. And it seemed like SD Works were very, very confident in Lotta Capecchi's sprint. Now, she hung on to AVV on the wall up to Siena and beat her, but it was close in Strada Bianca. Here we have a flat sprint. Yes, Capecchi is faster on paper, in real life. Um, she is the faster sprinter, bigger woman, and she's come top three regularly in bunch sprints. But you never know. It's at the end of Flanders. AVV is a super, superpower. And if she goes for a long sprint or if Vanderbilt Black runs out of steam, I don't know. Anyway, she paces. We get to the finish. Three up. Vanderbilt Black leading it out. AVV has to go early. She doesn't have the five-second acceleration. She has to burn Lodica Pecky. You hope she can. She goes with 250 to go super far. Kapeki comes out of the wheel early and proves my doubts wrong. Absolutely dusts AVV in the sprint erasing the volering omloop memory for SD Works, winning Ronde von Landre in the Belgian National Champs jersey, three or four bike lengths ahead of AVV. One Strata, now one RVV. I thought she'd be the new the new leader at um, SD Works before the season. For once, I was right about something. <laughs> and uh, it, although it could have been Royce, it could have been Vulnerable Black if AVV couldn't have closed them down. Incredible win for her. The top 10, though. Kebeki first, Van Lutten second, SD Works third as well with Vanderbilt Black, then Sierra fourth. So yep. really nice result from her. Royce fifth, then Utrecht Ludwig and Grace Brown actually caught the Chapman group, who with Cash and Navidoma were pacing the whole time, trying to catch the Kebeki Van Lutten group. And then it was Chapman ninth behind Navidoma and Bastianelli winning a bunch sprint for tenth. So that is. That's one of the best results, I think, of Chapman's career, and it could have been better. It was stronger than ninth. So fantastic result for her, fantastic for SD Works. Trek, a little bit lacking today. Yeah. Um, what went wrong, Benji? Is Balsamo it's just too hard the course for her? Yeah, I think the Polko was too hard for her. I was expecting it to be too hard for her. Longoborghini tried some stuff to be with moves, but in the end she was not with the decisive ones, and probably also uh, dependent on the fact that she probably wasn't good enough to be with those moves. And in the end, that leads to uh, no top 10 rider for Trekken. This is, uh, in my opinion, uh, the worst race of their season probably so far. And yes, they've won a lot with Elisa Balsamo, but RVV is a pretty good race. And it's been unfortunate that FDJ can get three riders in the top 10, that SD Works can get three riders in the top 10, that Movistar can get two riders in the top 10. And that Trek is not represented after strengthening their team so much before the season started. So I was expecting more as simple as that. Although I wasn't expecting Balsamo to be uh, there when the action happened when it comes to the fine lie. Didn't see it happening and it turned out to be correct for once. Just like your Kopecky prediction. We once got it right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, this is big for Belgium. Come on. Lots of Kopecky won RVV. It's her dream race. She got, I think, third at some point in, uh, in the history before. I think in 2020, actually, two years ago only, and her move to SD Works was a golden move for both parties, getting both Strade and RVV for that team now. Splendid upping in the career, and she's entering the peak years in her career as well. And I think the outnumbering factor of SD Works is so, so important in delivering these victories, especially RVV, 
you can say about Strade Bianche, sure, she was probably also simply one of the stronger riders there. One of the two stronger riders, probably the strongest in the end, to be honest. And I think the team factor was more important in this race than it was in Strade Bianche. I think so. If you if you don't put AVV under pressure before last Quarmont Paterberg, you're in trouble. Or if you don't have team to shut down and neutralize AVV on Koppenberg and you have to close that, doing your head-to-head TT with an hour left, you're in trouble. It makes a huge difference. And last year on Live, she was having to do that. I remember last year, Benji, in Paris-Roubaix, just thinking ahead a bit, Paris-Roubaix, Femavik, Swift in a couple of weeks, was she the rider that was on the left side of the road, wanted to have change a tyre and then veered to the right and crashed other riders last year in Paris-Roubaix? Maybe I'm putting yeah. that in. Yeah, that, it was that's her. right. She came 15th in the end. She is looking good for Roubaix as well. They've got Royce of the big engine. I think she should be the favorite for Roubaix. Ah, it's difficult because like, I think Roubaix is very different than all these races where you've got so many other candidates where on a flat Roubaix, you've got Brenauer that can come up and do well there. Majerus from SD Works is very strong on flat cobbles as well. Was also strong today in that group of Chapman. So, like you said, Bassinelli. But I don't know. I think uh, I think there's a difference between Roubaix and RVV, and we can't pull those two races over the same category. Personally, as a uh, RVV is in Beth Flanders, and therefore automatically the best race in the world. But um, yeah, I uh, it's gonna be interesting. I do think the outnumbering factor is huge again for Roubaix. They can play that yep. so so well, and we saw last year that Roubaix was opened up early. And they can do that because they've got plenty of riders to do stuff early with and still have riders left at the end. And we've never seen a dry women's Paris-Roubaix yet. So we don't know. Will it be dry? Well, that's a very good point. It might not be. It might be snowy conditions. As we know, the extreme weather protocol doesn't apply to one-day races just for Italian transition (laughs) stages in May. Uh, But yeah, I think the numbers advantage is more impactful in dry conditions where it was just an all-out every woman for herself in the mud last year. But huge win for Kopecky, huge win for SD Works. They fight back at Trek, who had been on an absolute burner with Elisa Balsamo and co winning Genfevelhem. So, yeah, huge. And there's no E3 yet. I think it's, you know, you're on – Was that is E3 in a couple of months? Yeah, it's next month or at the end of April, actually. But – I've heard basically nothing about it, despite the fact that it has like 40 kilometers or something off the hill. So it could actually turn out to be a uh, reduced bunch sprint like Kendwevelgem, if I saw it correctly, despite having quite a few of the known hills out there. So uh, yeah, if I know anything about it, I'll post it on Twitter, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think a lot of organizers have toying with various formats. Do you have the women's race on the Saturday? Do you have it? ASO previously have had it before the men's race. Not sure whether that's helped viewership as much. Flanders Classics have gone with the women's race, finishing about 75 minutes after the men's race. And now E3 have it on a completely different time. Um, I think one of the two best options is either on the Saturday and you make it a full weekend festival of cycling, or I'm sure the Flanders Classics won uh, as well. Definitely helps viewership with people transitioning straight from the men's race carrying that momentum into the women's finale but great race from sd works and big i mean it's over i can't believe it's over benji like i yeah. feel like the season's just started and we've already just done our flanders recap yeah, like, but where's the year going 
I've got the feeling that I was so hyped for RVV that we just had this day and I, I, I'm not realizing that the races are over yet. So I'm kind of in that phase of like, wait, there's nothing else? Like, we had two great races, but like, my, it's like only six in the evening. Come on. <laughs> I know. And we're straight into Basque Country tomorrow. I don't even know who's starting there. Apparently, they pulled Ayuso out and McNulty, and, which is a shame because that would have been some memes. But yeah, straight into Basque Country, then Amstel Gold Race next weekend, then Paru Bay, and then yeah. by then, Arden will be done and we'll be doing a Giro preview. Yeah. Are we doing Bravo on Sapel, though? That's a real question. Depends who lines up. Depends okay. if it's a good start list like we've seen in the past. Yeah, we'll be doing it. But that was all from us on Tour of Flanders weekend. Uh, Benji and I are planning on going to the Giro for the Grand Grande Partenza in Hungary at the start of May. So any Hungarian recommendations? Well, I've been to Budapest many times. Love the city. But yeah, we'll be going there, recording pods, checking it out. And uh, I'm really excited for that. That's thanks to the support of Swift. As always, the LRCP presenting sponsor. Till Bass Country tomorrow. Ciao. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.